lads. Explain those bad lads. That's a hell of a name. Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, and I'm here to tell you about my new product from my pillow. Towels that actually work. Watch this absorbency test. Here's another towel that we randomly went out and bought. Here's one of my towels with a nice design. I don't know if you can see this, but you could line a swimming pool with this. I mean, this is crazy. Get rid of it. Towels that actually work. What a concept. I'm interrupting this commercial to let you know you can get our six-piece My Towels, regular $69.98, now only $29.98. Or you can save 25% on our brand new kitchen towels made with the same technology as our famous My Towels. Also, we have bath sheets, bath towels, washcloths, hand towels, and so much more. And the best part, with your promo code, your entire order ships absolutely free. So go to MyPillow.com or call the number on your screen. Use that promo code to get deep discounts on all my towels. And for a limited time, your order ships absolutely free. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Reading Epic Lit. I'm your host, Patrick Gunnels, and today I'm covering Chapter 4, Part 1 of The Fourth Turning. Uh, the chapters are long, so I'm basically just going until I get tired and we see how many different episodes the chapter has to be uh, broken up into. This episode is about uh, cycles of history, Chapter 4. Uh, but before we get to that, let's talk about Gold Co., Are you concerned about the $6 trillion at stake in the upcoming 2024 election? The Wall Street Journal has reported a critical issue. The looming decision on extending tax cuts scheduled to expire after 2025. Republicans advocate for extending Trump's tax cuts, while the Democrats lean towards letting them expire and increasing taxes on top earners and corporations, potentially creating a massive $6 trillion gap. But fear not. There's a way to protect yourself from this impending threat. Join the thousands of hardworking Americans who are taking proactive steps to safeguard their savings. Visit BadlandsGold.com to claim your free 2024 gold and silver kit and fortify everything you've worked for. You may even qualify for up to 10% back in bonus silver, but hurry, supplies are limited. Don't leave your financial future to chance. Act now to diversify and shield your savings against the uncertainties ahead. Get your free 2024 gold and silver kit today at BadlandsGold.com and take control of your financial destiny. And now let's hear about the wellness company. Life is unpredictable. If we've learned anything these last four years, it's that. And while we can't possibly predict everything that might be thrown at us, we can prepare for it. Introducing two new emergency kits from the Wellness Company, the first aid emergency kit for everything from sports activities to camping trips. Compact and convenient, this kit contains critical prescription, medications, and supplies that everyone should have on hand. The travel emergency kit is designed for life on the go, compact, lightweight, and loaded with essentials for any adventure, whether it's a road trip, a hike, or just the unpredictability of daily life. You'll be ready. Next level readiness is at your fingertips. With emergency kits from the Wellness Company, stay one step ahead to have peace of mind for the unpredictable. Visit badlandsmedia.tv slash TWC and use promo code BADLANDS for an exclusive 10% discount. That's badlandsmedia.tv slash TWC, promo code BADLANDS. And finally... Let's talk about, obviously, my very favorite sponsor, Angel Paste. Attention all proud patriots of the USA. Are you ready to elevate your skincare routine to new heights of natural luxury? Introducing our premium sweet orange infused angel paste, meticulously crafted with only the finest food grade plant oils for your indulgence. Picture this, the vibrant scent of ripe oranges invigorating your senses with every application, while nutrient-rich oils deeply nourish and hydrate your skin. But what sets this version of Angel Paste apart? Our secret weapon, sweet orange essential oil loaded with vitamin C, a powerful detoxifier known to revitalize and brighten your skin. 
made with love and dedication in Spring, Texas. This lotion embodies the essence of American quality and purity. It's not just about the luxurious experience. It's about embracing the spirit of wellness and natural living. With each pump, you're not just treating your skin. You're making a statement, a statement of allegiance to the land of the free and the home of the brave. Angel Paste embodies the values of freedom, purity, and excellence that define the American spirit. Join the ranks of those who demand the best for their skin and their country. Elevate your skincare routine with our sweet orange essential oil-infused angel paste, where natural ingredients meet American pride. Because in America, we believe in nothing less than the best. Go to badlandsmedia.tv slash angelpaste, and don't forget to use promo code BADLANDS to pry a dollar from my grasping hands. Your skin will drink it up. Fourth Turning. Chapter 4, Cycles of History. Mount Rushmore's granite is a monument to four great American leaders. Born over a span of 126 years, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln represent four different generations, liberty, republican, progressive, and transcendental. But the mountain depicts more than that. Looking from left to right, the visitor sees permanent testimony to the best-regarded president of each archetype, chiseled not in chronological order, but in secular order. Nomad, hero, artist, and prophet. In the vision of Rushmore sculptor Gutzon Borglum, the power of the archetypal myths asserted itself once again. Millions of Americans have sensed in this monument a magnificently balanced rendering of their national history. Some generations are remembered for championing great principles, others for building great institutions. Some are remembered for pragmatism and boldness, others for learning and flexibility. Each archetype has produced its own greatness, its own special virtues and competencies to grow, prosper, and survive the shocks of history. America has required not one or two of these types, but truly all four. This fourfold collaboration is not accidental. It reflects a dynamic balance that originated when humanity began asking the question, how can we make society better? The origin of the American cycle. The self-sustaining cycle of archetypes originated at the very moment that the world made its enduring break with cyclical time and tradition. This happened in Western Europe during the last quarter of the 15th century. This Renaissance, what Jules Michelet and Jacob Burckhardt both called the rediscovery of the world and of man, marked the true Western threshold into modern history. It was an age of glorious art and architecture, demonstrating that man was now indeed the measure of all things. It was an age of autocratic nation-building, when rulers built vast central authority and forged a bloody new balance of power by means of cannons, gunships, muskets, and massed infantry. It was an age of buoyant commercial activity, sustained population growth, and stunning overseas explorations that gave rise to instant global empires. Yet even with the sea route to Cathay and the innumerable Palazzi Ducali, the birth of modernity remained only half complete. The other half did not arrive until 40 or 50 years later. That was when modernity's alter ego appeared in the spiritual white heat of the Reformation and its attendant heresies, reforms, reactions, and persecutions. The Reformation redefined the search for moral conviction, a search which no longer interested worldly clerics and rulers in terms of principles discernible by each person alone. By clearing away the intermediaries between the individual and God, the Reformation gave birth to an entirely modern definition of faith and conscience. Where the Renaissance shattered and reassembled the medieval secular order, the Reformation did likewise with the medieval religious order. Where the Renaissance redefined historical time as worldly progress toward happiness, the Reformation redefined it as spiritual progress toward salvation. Once both had run their course, the Western view of history and future would never be the same again. Energizing these changes were two remarkable European generations. The first, embodying the hero archetype, was born during the middle two decades of the 15th century. Its 
best remembered names resonate with conquest, rationalism, and practical invention. Rulers like Lorenzo the Magnificent of Florence, Charles the Bold of Burgundy, Ivan the Great of Russia, Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, artists like Botticelli, da Vinci, and Bramante, and explorers like Christopher Columbus, Amerigo Vespucci, and Vasco da Gama. The other generation born about 40 years later embodied the prophet archetype. On continental Europe, its best-remembered names, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, William Tyndale, Charles V of Spain, Ignatius Loyola, resonate with inner fervor, self-absorption, and judgmentalism. Modernity was thus created out of a stunning clash of generational archetypes. While the first hero generation celebrated the outer splendor of man's power over nature, its two-apart prophet shadow, disgusted by the stinking immorality of this hubristic show, as Luther recounted of his coming-of-age visit to Italy, glorified the inner fire of God's power over man. Propelled by this original cycle, other cycles would follow, setting in motion the rhythm of modern history and a Western fascination with generational contrasts that has lasted to this day. While the modern generational cycle can be said to originate in Western Europe during the late 1400s, the origin of the American generational cycle can be specified with greater precision. The place was the British Isles, home to the society that long dominated the development of English-speaking North America. The date was 1485, when the army of a courageous young noble named Henry Tudor defeated and slew King Richard III near the town of Market Bosworth. This event put an end to the Wars of the Roses and secured for England a dynamic Tudor monarchy. In so doing, it transformed England into a nation with modern principles of political legitimacy. Forty-nine years later, Henry's son enlisted his people in a raging fever of enthusiasm and reform to evict the vast spiritual and temporal power of the Church of Rome. In so doing, he secured for England a Protestant national church with modern principles of religious legitimacy. As with the rest of Europe, England's launch out of the Middle Ages was propelled by two history-bending generations, each the archetypal shadow of the other. The first, the heroic Arthurian generation of Henry VII and John Cabot laid the political foundations. The second, the prophetic Reformation generation of Henry VIII and John Knox laid the religious foundations. Over the next two centuries, an alternating sequence of heroes and prophets gestated a new American civilization. First, William Shakespeare's Elizabethan generation produced the heroes who founded, circa 1600, the first permanent English settlements on the Atlantic seaboard. Two, John Winthrop's Puritan generation produced the prophets who summoned, circa 1640, the first great migration to America. Third, King... Carter's glorious generation produced the heroes who transformed, circa 1690, a chaotic colonial backwater into a stable provincial society. Fourth, Jonathan Edwards' awakening generation produced the prophets who declared, circa 1740, the new world's social and spiritual independence from the old and fifth. Thomas Jefferson's republican generation produced the heroes who created, circa 1790, the United States of America. To observe that the American generational cycle has its roots in England is not, of course, to ascribe the personal roots of most Americans to that one small corner of the globe. You have to go back to the beginning of this century, to 1900, to find an America in which over half of the inhabitants considered themselves to be of English ancestry. Now only about one-fifth do. A large majority still consider themselves to be of Western European ancestry, but that share, too, is in steady decline. To trace the family lineage of tens of millions of Americans today, you would have to tell a story that largely disregards the nation-states that arose within the frontiers of the ancient Roman Empire. For Native Americans, 
Such a story would start 30 millennia ago, with the first Asiatic peoples trekked the land highway across the Bering Strait and founded tribal civilizations on the tracks of receding glaciers. For black Americans, such a story would start among the kingdoms of Central Africa and tell tales of capture, bondage, sale, and the deadly middle passage to the New World. For countless later immigrants, such stories would crisscross over the earth, from potato farms along the Shannon to rice fields along the Yangtze, from dense communities in the Ukraine to the barren landscape of Sweden, from the Braceros of Mexico to the boat people of Indochina. Notwithstanding the ethnic diversity of Americans today, the fact remains that the cyclicality of New World history originated with British immigrants, those who monopolized the development of the colonial civilization that would later become the United States. For more than two centuries, after the founding of Jamestown and Plymouth, Native Americans were pushed almost entirely outside the settled boundaries of that civilization. Except for scattered pioneers and trappers on the outskirts, few colonists had meaningful discourse with Native peoples. African Americans living side by side with colonists in substantial numbers and amounting to nearly a fifth of the population by 1776 were undoubtedly a greater defining influence on American society. But the vast majority lived in four southern colonies where that influence was strictly controlled by the institution of slavery. Natives and blacks aside, America's ethnic diversity is of relatively recent origin. Among white colonists, Anglo-Saxon immigrants were long dominant. By 1720, a full seculum after Plymouth Plantation, an estimated 90% of free colonists had English, Scottish, or Ulster Scott ancestors. By 1820, two secula later, this figure was still around 80% and of the remainder, roughly half consisted of German or Dutch stock, peoples whose history had been intertwined with that of England. As late as the 1830s, the free population of the United States was almost entirely Northern European and Protestant. American political debates were waged largely in terms of British precedence and the use of the English language had become more standard in America than in England itself. This complexion began to change with the large waves of gilded generation immigrants in the 1840s. As they came, these and other immigrants pushed and pulled on an Anglo-American generational cycle that had already acquired great historical momentum. Like new moons caught in a planetary orbit, these new immigrant waves affected the social trajectories of all parties, arriving minorities and resident majority. Though not directly linked to the origin of the cycle, the stories of African Americans and non-Anglo immigrants are closely linked to the cycle's rhythm. From the Stono Uprising of 1739 to Nat Turner's Rebellion of 1831, from W.E.B. Du Bois's turn-of-the-century black consciousness movement to the long, hot summers of the 1960s, America's loudest challenges against racism have coincided with the coming of age of the prophet archetype. The rise of new ethnicities, Catholic, Germans, and Irish in the 1850s, Jews, Italians, and Poles in the 1910s, Hispanics, and Asians today has usually coincided with the coming of age of the nomad archetype. Likewise, the worst nativist reactions have reflected a recurring parental urge to protect the childhood of a fledgling hero archetype. America's very existence as a favored destination for, for migrants the world over has played a crucial role in the emergence of the generation as a unit of history. In early modern Europe, England included meaningful membership in generations was limited to elites, that is, to those who were free to break from tradition and redefine the social roles of whatever phase of life they occupied. After Jamestown and the Mayflower, however, the New World offered this opportunity to any person who could buy or borrow passage. From the 17th century through the present, the promise of generational change is one reason why America has remained such a magnet to would-be immigrants worldwide. In a series of stages, religious toleration, national independence, suffrage for non-propertied males, emancipation of slaves, full civil rights for women and minority races, America has gradually offered more people access to a full measure of its dream of generational advancement. Nowadays, everyone, no matter how disadvantaged or recently arrived, 
can be fairly said to have a bona fide chance to share in the redefinition of social roles and hence to join in what makes the generational cycle turn, partly because of the kind of society the earliest immigrants created here, but also because of the nature of the people drawn here. America offers the world's clearest example of the generational cycle at work. Archetypes in American History from the Arthurian generation through today's millennial generation children, there have been 24 generations in the Anglo-American lineage. The first six were purely English. The next four were colonial, yet still heavily influenced by English society and politics. The 11th, Awakeners, born 1701 to 1723, became the first distinctively American generation, the first whose name, birth years, and persona diverge significantly from peers in the United Kingdom. The Awakeners were also the first generation to be made up mostly of native-born Americans and late in life, the first to know the U.S. nation and flag. So although today's millennial children are the 24th in our full lineage of post-medieval generations, they are 14th in the American line. In the overview of the Anglo-American Seculum, which begins on page 123, these 24 generations are grouped by the Seculum in which they were born. Four generational synopses are provided per Seculum, starting with the prophet archetype and ending with the artist. The first prophet birth year and last artist birth year line up closely with the secular boundary dates. This repeating fourfold pattern has two exceptions. The first late medieval half-seculum, whose story begins with a hero archetype, and the civil war seculum, the only true anomaly, which produced not four but three generations, taken as a whole. This summary provides a collective biography of modernity told from the inside out from the perspective of the cycle of life. It is quite unlike any history you will find in the vast corpus of conventional scholarship. Notice how the four archetypes follow each other in a recurring sequence. Each archetype encounters both an awakening and a crisis once at some point in its life cycle and always encounters these eras at precisely the same phase of life. Notice how location in history shapes younger generations and is shaped by older generations in a predictable manner. Here again, the only exception arose during the Civil War seculum, which produced no hero archetype. To understand the connection between these generations and history, reflect on their four archetypal personas and recall the roster of prominent people who share each archetype. We remember prophets best for their coming-of-age passion, the excited pitch of Jonathan Edwards, William Lloyd Garrison, William Jennings Bryan, and for their principled elder stewardship, the sober pitch of Samuel Langdon at Bunker Hill, President Lincoln at Gettysburg, and FDR with his fireside chats. Increasingly indulged as children, they become increasingly protective as parents. Their principal endowments are in the domain of vision, values, and religion. Their best-known leaders include John Winthrop and William Berkeley, Samuel Adams and Benjamin Franklin, James Polk and Abraham Lincoln, and Herbert Hoover and Franklin Roosevelt. These have been principled moralists, summoners of human sacrifice, wagers of righteous wars. Early in life, none saw combat in uniform. Late in life, most came to be revered more for their inspiring words than for their grand deeds. We remember nomads best for their rising adult years of hell-raising, Paxton boys, Missouri Raiders, rum runners, and for their midlife years of hands-on, get-it-done leadership, Francis Marion, Stonewall Jackson, George Patton, underprotected as children, they become overprotective parents. Their principal endowments are in the domain of liberty, survival, and honor. Their best-known leaders include Nathaniel Bacon and William Stoughton, George Washington and John Adams, Ulysses Grant and Grover Cleveland, Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower. These have been cunning, hard-to-fool realists, taciturn warriors who prefer to meet problems and adversaries one by one. 
They include the only two presidents who had earlier hanged a man, Washington and Cleveland, one governor who hanged witches, Stoughton, and several leaders who had earlier led troops into battle, Bacon, Washington, Grant, Truman, and Eisenhower. We remember heroes best for their collective coming-of-age triumphs, glorious revolution, Yorktown, D-Day, and for their hubristic elder achievements, the peace of Utrecht and slave codes, the Louisiana Purchase and steamboats, the Apollo moon launches and interstate highways. Increasingly protected as children, they become increasingly indulgent as parents. Their principal endowment activities are in the domain of community, affluence, and technology. Their best-known leaders include Gurdon Sultan Stahl and King Carter, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, John Kennedy and Ronald Reagan. They have been vigorous and rational institution builders. All have been aggressive advocates of economic prosperity and public optimism in midlife, and all have maintained a reputation for civic energy and competence to the very ends of their lives. We remember artists best for their quiet years of rising adulthood, the log cabin settlers of 1800, the plains farmers of 1880, the new suburbanites of, eight, of 1960, and during their midlife years of flexible consensus building leadership, the compromises of the Whig era, the good government reforms of the progressive era, the budget and peace processes of the current era, overprotected as children, they become underprotective parents. Their principal endowment activities are in the domain of pluralism, expertise, and due process. Their best-known leaders include William Shirley and Cadwaller Colden, John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson, Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, Walter Mondale, and Colin Powell. These have been sensitive and complex social technicians, advocates of fair play and the politics of inclusion. With the single exception of Andrew Jackson, they rank as the most expert and credentialed of American political leaders. As shown in the chart on this page, these four archetypes have lent balance and self-correction to the continuing story of America. Were our ancestral legacy to have had too much or too little of any of the four, we would today be poorer for it. Each generation has what all of history has not, a beginning, an end, and a finite path in between. As Ortega observed, a generation is not a stationary object, but rather a vital trajectory between the hopes of youth and the memories of old age. It never matters as much where a generation is as where it is going. Here, we return to the wisdom of the ancients, how every organism through its development both stays the same and yet transforms into its opposite. In certain respects, a generation always retains its persona of youth. In other ways, it expresses that persona very differently in each successive phase of life. We see this among the GIs who once prided themselves on their dedication to the future, but who now comprise the largest consumption lobby in American history. We see this among the silent who were once chided for their lonely crowd conformism, but who now are enjoying a lifestyle of exuberant individualism full of choices and options. Boomers once dreamed of a pepperland of tolerance, pleasure, and love, but now sternly police the perceived excesses of youth. The first 13ers engaged in high-risk behavior coming of age, but today's fledgling householders are beginning to turn against personal and public risk. The beat goes on. What happens to each generation separately is only part of the picture. Of more importance to history is what happens to generations together. They age in place in a manner that Francois Montré described as tiles on a roof, overlapping in time, corrective in purpose, complementary in effect. As generations age, they together form new archetypal constellations that alter every aspect of society, from government and the economy to culture and family life. It's Francois. They just put a G in there. It's a typo. Over the course of a cycle, these constellations can produce sharply different social results, reflect on how unlike the following two societies will be. One is run by expansive old heroes and uncertain midlife artists whose combined public works are torched by fiery young prophets and whose freedoms are inconvenienced by hurried nomad children. The other is led by judgmental old prophets and pragmatic midlife nomads whose combined public works are assisted by team-playing young heroes and whose duties are unimpeded by quiescent child artists. 
The former is an awakening constellation like that of two decades ago during the consciousness revolution. The latter is a crisis constellation like that of World War II and the crisis to come. Archetypes and turnings. A turning is an era with a characteristic social mood, a new twist on how people feel about themselves and their nation. It results from the aging of the generational constellation. A society enters a turning once every 20 years or so, when all living generations begin to enter their next phases of life, like archetypes and constellations, turnings come for to a seculum, and always in the same order. The first turning is a high. Old prophets disappear, nomads enter elderhood, and heroes enter midlife. Artists enter young adulthood, and a new generation of prophets is born. The second turning is an awakening. Old nomads disappear. Heroes enter elderhood. Artists enter midlife. Prophets enter young adulthood. And a new generation of child nomads is born. The third turning is an unraveling. Old heroes disappear. Artists enter elderhood. Prophets enter midlife. Nomads enter young adulthood, and a new generation of child heroes is born. The fourth turning is a crisis. Old artists disappear. Prophets enter elderhood. Nomads enter midlife. Heroes enter young adulthood, and a new generation of child artists is born. Like the four seasons of nature, the four turnings of history are equally necessary and equally important. Awakenings and crises are the secular solstices, summer and winter, each a solution to a challenge posed by the other. Highs and unravelings are the secular equinoxes, spring and autumn, each coursing a path directionally opposed to the other. When a society moves into an awakening or a crisis, the new mood announces itself as a sudden turn in social direction. An awakening begins when events trigger a revolution in the culture, a crisis when events trigger an upheaval in public life. A high or unraveling announces itself as a sudden consolidation of the new direction. A high begins when society perceives that the basic issues of the prior crisis have been resolved leaving a new civic regime firmly in place. An unraveling begins with the perception that the awakening has been resolved, leaving a new cultural mindset in place. The gateway to a new turning can be obvious and dramatic, like the 1929 stock market crash, or subtle and gradual, like 1984's Morning in America. It usually occurs two to five years after a new generation of children starts being born. The tight link between turning gateways and generational boundaries enables each archetype to fill an entire phase of life, just as the mood of an old turning grows stale and feels ripe for replacement with something new. The four turnings comprise a quaternal social cycle of growth, maturation, entropy, and death, and rebirth. In a spring-like high, a society fortifies and builds and converges in an era of promise. In a summer-like awakening, it dreams and plays and exults in an era of euphoria. In an autumnal unraveling, it harvests and consumes and diverges in an era of anxiety. In a hibernal crisis, it focuses and struggles and sacrifices in an era of survival. When the seculum is in motion, therefore, no long human lifetime can go by without a society confronting its deepest spiritual and worldly needs. Every 20 to 25 years or, in common parlance, once a generation, people are surprised by the arrival of a new secular season, just as people are by the end of spring announced by the first oppressively humid day, or the end of autumn by the first sleet storm, we keep forgetting that history, like nature, must turn. Abraham Lincoln understood as much, speaking to a crowd just 18 months before the bombardment of Fort Sumter. He told a story of an Asiatic monarch who directed his wise men to compose a statement, quote, to be ever in view, and which should be true and appropriate in all times and situations. 
After considerable study, the sages drafted an answer. This too shall pass away. Modernity has thus far produced six repetitions of each turning. From the record of history, the following typology can be constructed. The first turning, a high, brings a renaissance to community life. With the new civic order in place, people want to put the crisis behind them and feel content about what they have collectively achieved. Any social issues left unresolved by the crisis must now remain so. The need for dutiful sacrifice has ebbed, yet the society continues to demand order and consensus. The recent fear for Group survival transmutes into a desire for investment, growth, and strength, which in turn produces an era of commercial prosperity, institutional solidarity, and political stability. The big public arguments are over means, not ends. Security is a paramount need. Obliging individuals serve a purposeful society. Though a few loners voice disquiet over the spiritual world, life tends toward the friendly and homogeneous, but attitudes toward personal risk tend to be, begin to loosen. The sense of shame, which rewards duty and conformity, reaches its zenith. Gender distinctions attain their widest point, and child-rearing become, becomes more indulgent. Wars are unlikely except as unwanted echoes of the recent crisis. Eventually, civic life seems fully under control, but distressingly spirit-dead. People worry that as a society they can do everything, but no longer feel anything. The post-World War II American high may rank as the all-time apogee of the national mood. The Gilded Age surge into the Industrial Age was supported by a rate of capital formation unmatched in U.S. history, symbolized by the massive turbines in the Centennial Exposition's Hall of Machines. In the early 19th century, the geometric grids of the District of Columbia and Northwest Territory townships projected a mood of ordered community that culminated in the era of good feelings, the only time a U.S. president was re-elected by acclamation. In the upbeat 1710s, poetic odes to flax and shipping conjured up a society preoccupied, in Cotton Mather's words, with usefulness and good works. Recall... America's circa 1963 conception of the future, we brimmed over with optimism about Camelot, a bustling future with smart people in which big projects and impossible dreams were freshly achievable. The moon could be reached and poverty eradicated both within a decade. Tomorrowland was a friendly future with moving skywalks, pastel geometric shapes, soothing music, and well-tended families. In the carousel of progress... The progress remained fixed, while the carousel, what moved, was the audience. The future had specificity and certainty, but lacked urgency and moral direction. The second turning. An awakening arrives with a dramatic challenge against the high's assumptions about benevolent reason and congenial institutions. The outer world now feels trivial compared to the inner world. New spiritual agendas and social ideals burst forth, along with utopian experiments seeking to reconcile total fellowship with total autonomy. The prosperity and security of a high are overtly disdained, though covertly taken for granted. A society searches for soul over science, meanings over things. Youth-fired attacks break out against the established institutional order. As these attacks take their toll, society has difficulty coalescing around common goals. People stop believing that social progress requires social discipline. Any public effort that requires collective discipline encounters withering controversy. Wars are awkwardly fought and badly remembered afterward. A euphoric enthusiasm over spiritual needs eclipses concern over secular problems, contributing to a high tolerance for risk-prone lifestyles. People begin feeling guilt about what they earlier did to avoid shame. Public order deteriorates and crime and substance abuse rise. Gender distinctions narrow and child-rearing reach reaches the point of minimum protection and structure. Eventually, the enthusiasm cools. Having left the old cultural regime fully discredited, internal enemies identified, comity shattered, and institutions delegitimized. 
many Americans recall this mood on the campuses and urban streets of the consciousness revolution. Earlier generations knew a similar mood in Greenwich Village around 1900, in utopian communes around 1840, in the Connecticut Valley nearly a century earlier, and in the Puritans' new Jerusalems in the post-Mayflower decades. Recall America's circa 1984 conception of the future. Tomorrowland had evolved through 2001, a space odyssey, to Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, a spiritual future in which human consciousness triumphs over machines. The visions alternated between perfection and disaster, between utopias celebrating love and dystopias annihilating everything. We believed that self-expression took precedence over self-control, even if we still assumed that large institutions would continue to cohere and function without much difficulty. The third turning. An unraveling begins as a society-wide embrace of the liberating cultural forces set loose by the awakening, people have had their fill of spiritual rebirth, moral protest, and lifestyle experimentation, content with what they have become individually. They vigorously assert an ethos of pragmatism, self-reliance, laissez-faire, and national or sectional or ethnic chauvinism. While personal satisfaction is high, public trust ebbs, amid a fragmenting culture, harsh debates over values, and weakening civic habits. Pleasure-seeking lifestyles coexist with a declining public tolerance for aberrant personal behavior. The sense of guilt, which rewards principle and individuality, reaches its zenith. Gender differences attain their narrowest point. Families stabilize and new protections are provided for children. As moral debates brew, the big public arguments are over ends, not means. Decisive public action becomes very difficult as community problems are deferred. Wars are fought with moral fervor but without consensus or follow-through. Eventually, cynical alienation hardens into a brooding pessimism. During a high, obliging individuals serve a purposeful society, and even bad people get harnessed to socially constructive tasks. During an unraveling, an obliging society serves purposeful individuals, and even good people find it hard to connect with their community. The approaching specter of public disaster ultimately elicits a mix of paralysis and apathy that would have been unthinkable half a seculum earlier. People can now feel, but collectively can no longer do. The mood of the current culture wars era seems new to nearly every living American, but is not new to history. Around World War I, America was steeped in reform and fundamentalism amid a flood tide of crime, alcohol, immigration, political corruption, and circus trials. The 1850s likewise simmered with moral righteousness, shortening tempers, and multiplying mavericks. It was a decade, says historian David Donald, in which, quote, the authority of all government in America was at a low point. Entering the 1760s, the colonies felt rejuvenated in spirit but reeled from violence, mobs, insurrections, and paranoia over the corruption of official authority. Look at how Americans today conceive the future, 1997. Think tank luminaries exult over the history-bending changes of the information age while the public glazes at the expertise cynically disregards the good news and dwells on the negative. The pop culture rakes with futuristic images of total recall, dysfunction, robocop crimes, terminator punishments, and Independence Day deliverance from evil. The fourth turning. A crisis arises in response to sudden threats that previously would have been ignored or deferred, but which are now perceived as dire. Great worldly perils boil off the clutter and complexity of life, leaving behind one simple imperative. The society must prevail. This requires a solid public consensus, aggressive institutions, and personal sacrifice. People support new efforts to wield public authority, whose perceived successes soon justify more of the same. Government governs. Community obstacles are removed, and laws and customs that resisted change for decades are swiftly shunted aside. A grim preoccupation with civic peril causes spiritual curiosity to decline. 
a sense of public urgency contributes to a clampdown on bad conduct or antisocial lifestyles. People begin feeling shameful about what they earlier did to absolve guilt. Public order tightens, private risk-taking abates, and crime and substance abuse decline. Families strengthen, gender distinctions widen, and child-rearing reaches a smothering degree of protection and structure. The young focus their energy on worldly achievements, leaving values in the hands of the old. Wars are fought with fury and for maximum result. Eventually, the mood transforms into one of exhaustion, relief, and optimism. Buoyed by a newborn faith in the group and in authority, leaders plan, people hope, and a society yearns for good and simple things. Today's older Americans recognize this as the mood of the Great Depression and World War II, but a similar mood has been present in all the other great gates of our history, from the Civil War and Revolution back into colonial and English history. Recall America's conception of the future during the darkest years of its last crisis, from somewhere over the rainbow to the glimmering Futurama at the 1939 New York World's Fair, people felt hope, determination, and a solid consensus about where society should go toward spiritual simplicity, home and apple pie, and material abundance, bigger, better, and more homes and pies. All this seemed within reach, conditioned on a triumph that demanded unity from all, sacrifices from many. The overview at the end of this chapter offers a summary of all the turnings over seven secula of Anglo-American history. Each turning made its own contribution to history. Each offered its own solutions, which in time created new problems and anxieties. Thus have the four turnings kept the great wheel of time in motion, infusing civilization with periodic new doses of vitality, propelling the human adventure ever forward. The summary chart on this page reveals a number of cycles that unfold over the four seasons of the seculum. This prompts the question, what would history be like if the seculum did not exist? In chaotic time, history would bear no pattern. Any effort to chart it would list columns and rows that describe anything and therefore nothing. Society would zigzag aimlessly at any time. It could accelerate, stop, reverse course, or come to an end. In linear time, there would be no turnings, just segments along one directional path of progress. Each 20-year segment would produce more of everything produced by the prior segment. On a chart, every cell in any given row would read just like the one before, except with a higher multiplier. The 2020s would be a mere extrapolation of the 1990s, with more cable channels and web pages and senior benefits and corporate free agents plus more handgun murders, media violence, cultural splintering, political cynicism, youth alienation, partisan meanness, and distance between rich and poor. There would be no apogee, no leveling, no correction eventually. America would veer totally out of control along some bizarre centrifugal path. In cyclical time, a society always evolves. Usually the circle is a spiral of progress, sometimes a spiral of decline. Always people strive to mend the errors of the past, to correct the excesses of the present, to seek a future that provides whatever feels most in need. Thus can civilization endure and thrive. All right, I'm going to stop there. It's a good stopping point. We've covered all of the four turnings and how they fit in with the generations. If I'm reading this correctly, I think I, as a Gen Xer, I'm part of a nomad generation. Uh, John Harold is, uh, is like smack dab in the middle of the millennial generation, making him a hero, I think. And then the generation that comes after the hero is the artist. So that makes Gen Z the artists and Generation Alpha is a new generation of prophets. Uh, those of you who have read The Fourth Turning already and know it well, if I'm wrong about that, please correct me at pgunnels at gmail.com. Furthermore, I know the name is pronounced Colin Powell, not Colin Powell. When I see the name Colin, C-O-L-I-N, I pronounce it Colin, and then I saw the Powell at the end of it. He likes to name himself after the poop shoot, so I think it's appropriate. Colin Powell, one of the world's biggest scumbags ever to live, really. Just absolute filth. Anyway... Thank you, everybody, for being here. This has been Reading Epic Lit. Uh, I do this thing 
and schedule it to play right after the Devolution Power Hour. And, uh, you know, it's fun. Fourth Turning, strongly recommended by Seth Keschel. Really, really informative. Getting less dry as it gets more applicable directly to the life we're living right now. Because we're ending in, I think, what we're living through right now, what, what this happens right here, I think 2020 was the end of an unraveling and a beginning of a crisis. We're at the very beginning part of the crisis era. And it's appropriate because this Gen X nomad generation is coming into its own. It's entering midlife and taking over the institutions right as the crisis begins. So, all right. Thank you, everybody, for watching. Uh, don't forget our sponsors, especially Angel Pace, now that we've got for pre-order. I need to specify that in the text. It's for pre-order and we'll start shipping on March 8th. So I expect them all to be sold out by the time they ship. Get your sweet orange-infused angel paste detoxifying vitamin C. Don't forget to go to badlandsmedia.tv slash angelpaste. Go to badlandsmedia.tv slash TWC for the wellness company's new med kits. Go to mypillow.com. Use promo code BADLANDS. And, of course, uh, the Gold Co., badlandsgold.com, all four amazing sponsors. And uh, thank you, everybody, for watching. And uh, I will see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us, and don't forget to hit the thumbs up on this video. And a special thank you to all of our advertising partners. Please remember to shift your dollars to support those businesses that support Badlands Media.